This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time, but still found the time to create a course, grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy. We have Brandon Griffith, a current law enforcement, but you said uh, reserve. Yes, sir. The Reserve Deputy for Pinal County Sheriff's Office. That's the county uh, Mark Lamb runs. Yes, sir. American Sheriff. American Sheriff. Yeah, follow him on Instagram. Um, he he seems like a cool dude. He's gotten very political lately. Is he running? Is he running for a sheriff? That's what happens when you run in there. He's running for Senate right now. So he's okay. currently he's our current sheriff, but he's running for AZ Senate right now. All right. Can you link us up so I can uh, get him on the show? Yeah, dude. Mark, he's good people, man. He's really down to earth. He uh, he just spoke for my nonprofit at one of our events and came and did a book signing along with Deputy One Timer, Chief Matt Thomas, who's the Mexican drug cartel expert. So both good uh, guys who believe in the cause and want to save lives. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. So on this show, I stay away from politics. Um, it, Don't blame it's, you. <laughs> it's such a hot button issue. But I love to talk about like what you're doing outside of law enforcement, um, your nonprofit. Uh, what's the name of it again? Our nonprofit is Griffith Blue Heart Nonprofit. We're a Griffith Blue Heart. And you put up the um, the graphic before you were saying it was actually your heart. Yeah. So our logo, what started off originally as a tattoo, as a tribute to my wife when I was working for the state. They wanted me to help create an award for officers who save people's lives in the line of duty with CPR and using an AED. And they wanted to name it after my wife and I, but I was like, ah, I'm not into that. I don't want to, I don't want it to be called the grip of the award or anything like that. But <laughs> I said, let's do something for cops and call it the blue heart award. And they said, well, I can't do that. Let's just do the grip of blue heart award. So it turned into that. And then when we started the nine, the nonprofit organization, we incorporated the logo, but it's got an anatomical heart because I'm a cardiac arrest survivor and my wife is also a cardiovascular perfusionist. So all she does is open heart surgeries, but the thin blue line in the middle of it is actually taken from the EKG strip from the medics. When they shocked me back, it's my first heartbeat. So we got that in there. And we also got St. Michael's wings with the paint Santa police officers. So it started as a tattoo, then it became an award. And then we ended up using it for our company logo because it resonated with a lot of people. They loved it. 
I love I love it too. Um it was it caught my eye as soon as it flashed on the screen. I was like, oh that's really cool. Um how old were you when you had that cardiac arrest? I was 26 years old and just made my department SWAT team two weeks before. Wow. So you were probably in decent shape too. Yeah, great shape, 26 years old. I was a defensive tactics instructor, a field training officer. You know, there was no stress, nothing. It's just one of those things that can happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere. And it was my number. Wow. How tall are you and what was your weight back then? So I am six foot four. Currently, I weigh 248 pounds. Back then, I was probably around the same, probably around 250-ish. Um, yeah, great shape, but everyone has this, these different conceptions about it. Anytime anyone hears cardiac, they think about heart attacks. They think about old men grabbing their chest. They don't realize that young athletic males and particularly cops are at the highest risk. I mean, we're at a 70 times higher risk than the general public and it's electrical. It's not a clogged artery. It's not from eating too many cheeseburgers or having a sedentary lifestyle. It's an electrical misfire. Like plug in that Christmas tree shorts out on you. Wow. Yeah. That's what I, the weird thing about me and my story is that I remember every detail, most cardiac arrest survivors, they get told about it later on. They wake up in the ICU you know, five days, couple of weeks, couple of months later, and their spouse is telling them about it. But I remember every detail going down, coming back. I don't know. It was just because I was predisposed and been through critical stress incidents. My body is used to the, you know, the adrenaline dumps and the neurons firing, or if it's just because my wife literally started compressions the second I dropped. But I remember every detail. If you want to hear all about it, yeah, I do. I do want to hear about it because this is. Uh, I I thought about clogged arteries also. Like as soon as you mentioned, it, I wasn't thinking you know, misfiring. So it's a, it's a big, it's a big thing that's not really talked about. You know, the cardiac industry has done a piss poor job of educating the public on what heart disease is and heart disease is a blanket term, right? So that covers your heart failures that can covers congenital defects, heart attacks, or also known as myocardial infarctions. And there's electrical complications that are called cardiac arrest. So a heart attack is 95% survivable, but it can go into cardiac arrest, which actually kills the patient. That's a plumbing issue where a section of the heart is clogged up. You know, that's usually lifestyle based. And that's when the people get stents in their heart or, you know, they have the widow makers and all that stuff. Those things happen slowly. You know, they have, they're sweaty, they're palmy, they're having all kinds of chest pain, and then they usually drop. But cardiac arrest is like someone just flipped the light switch and bam, they're on the ground. They immediately stop breathing normally if they're breathing at all. It's like uh, when we saw DeMar Hamlin go down on the football field or, Eric, uh, Christian Erickson, the, the soccer player, they, they're standing there and all of a sudden they just drop. Someone turned the lights out on them. It's because their heart is in this deadly arrhythmia and there is no blood being pumped to the rest of their body. It's in this quivering motion. And if it doesn't receive compressions and a shock from a defibrillator, it can't go back to a normal rhythm. So they are medically dead at that moment. There's no blood circulating around their body. The brain's not getting any kind of oxygen. Wow. And that's all those stories you see around the country. There's like you know 20,000 something kids per year under the age of 18 all those stories you hear about high school athletes just dropping dead in the middle of track or swim or hockey or basketball, all those cops and military guys you see that are in perfect shape that just drop dead, that's cardiac arrest. And, you know, even in our own community and law enforcement, they don't realize, I mean, Harvard Medical School did a study in 2014 that showed that we are at a 70 times higher risk than the general public. And then for the general public, one out of four Americans has heart disease. So if you start looking the numbers, you're like, crap, we're at a 25 times higher risk of dying from a heart complication than a violent encounter with a suspect. But cops are doing a piss poor job of taking care of ourselves and the job and the marathon that we go through and put our bodies through over a 20, 30 year career 
is what's absolutely killing guys, which is why most guys drop dead within the first five to 10 years of retiring. They either have a heart attack, a stroke, a TIA, they go into cardiac arrest. This is what our number one killer is. It's not the suicides. It's not motor vehicle accidents. It's not violent encounters with, subje with, with subjects. It's heart disease. And it's not talked about it. You know, the IACPs and all these other meetings you go to, the health and wellnesses and all that. I was just having a conversation with a guy who's retired from the uh, GBI. And we, 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 he was saying that he worked for Delaware for a short time. And he had this crazy schedule where it was seven days on, one day off, seven days on nights, one day off, and then, or two days off, or something like that. And then they came back for seven days on of midnights. And then they'd have like three days off. And it was like, I'm like, who thought that that schedule was good? I yeah, made this crap up, man. Like you see it all around the country. People have these crazy schedules. We're sleep deprived. Our yes. endocrine systems are in overdrive. We got guys that are addicted to energy drinks and they just chug one after the next. We've got, we drink too much. We smoke too much. We're eating food at the gas station. Guys are working out at the wrong times. They're not taking care of. I mean, all these things compound over a 20 year career. And it's not the stress from just the traumas we see in the field. We all knew we were going to see that but the administrative stress and the political nightmares and all the red tape we have to deal with as well directly contribute to us and our family lives. And it's just, it's detrimental to our health. Is there any way to prevent or like a misfiring or is it just one of those things that you, it could really literally happen to anyone? Man, you're, we're going to dive into it now. So <laughs> there's a lot of things that can be prevented as well as lifestyle, but you know, most agencies have got programs most of the cops who get the physicals, you know, but the, the turn your head and cough physical does not cover your heart. A simple EKG, you know, most of us, if you go to a cardiologist and get a full cardiac workup, you're going to find something, especially if you've been on the job for 10, 15 years. Going and getting an actual heart check, doing stress tests, getting a calcium coronary check, getting uh, ultrasounds, EKGs, that's paramount for cops that want to survive and detect anything because, you know, especially for the electrical side, there are diagnosable electrical, electrophysiological diseases like long QT syndrome or Brugada or Wolf Parkinson's white. Those are things that they can detect and they can fix. I, I can't tell you how many times I do podcasts or I speak and I start talking about some of the things that guys get from the, the flutters in their heart to their heart racing out of their chest to the, the lightheadedness and feelings they get sometimes when they're working out. They're like, oh, yeah, I have that, too. I thought it was normal. No, it's not normal. Well, that's something that we as a community think is normal. But when you actually get checked out. These guys are having serious heart complications and they, I'll tell you, I got famous cops that do podcasts and shows that have called me and had to go get ablations done. And as soon as it was done, it's fixed for life. But other ones want to ignore the signs and bury their head in the sand. Like, well, don't tell anybody I got this. There's such a stigma around it. It's like it affects 70% of our community and we act like it's this big secret. Like, don't talk about it. But if we don't when I used it, to uh, do a lot of overtime, I, I used to stay until like three, four, five in the morning. And I would feel those flutters and I would feel those. So I did get checked out for like calcium deposits. I never had a stress test, but I did get checked out. Did you ever see an electrophysiologist or did you just see a regular cardiologist? I went somewhere in New York City where they hook you up to a very special machine. And I don't believe I drank anything, but... um. They were able to tell me that I was in the top percentile of like 
everything being clear and checked out. So if you're having complications or you're still just be sitting there and I feel like your heart's racing out of your chest, you have those flutters, you know, there's some, there's things called preventricle contractions and PACs as well that like 90% of the population get. But when it goes into clusters, that's when you have complications. When cops and firefighters and military members are sitting there and they're getting these clusters where you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's bad. If you have them stop. If you're holding your breath, if you're getting lightheaded from that, you are this close to having a cardiac arrest. Though, when you start getting those clusters, you need to get hooked up, go see an electrophysiologist, wear a Holter monitor, get checked out because you're having an electrical misfire that could lead to a very deadly arrhythmia like ventricular tachycardia or ventricular uh, fibrillation. And that's what happened to me. I had a ventricular fibrillation and I was dead for 16 and a half minutes before my wife and a fellow officer were able to save me. Oh my God, you're so knowledgeable about this stuff. How long have you been studying? Was it after your heart attack? Or like, how long have you been studying all of these things about the heart? And so I, heart disease has hit me in a way that most people will never understand. Man, The first time I did CPR, I was in high school. I wasn't even a man yet. And then I lost a buddy in college who had uh, electrical complication. He was a phenomenal wide receiver. He was at home for Christmas break and dropped dead. And everyone decided to wait for the professionals and no one did shit. And he died. And then I had an uncle go down from an issue that was unrelated. And then it actually took my life. Um, but before I, before I even got into law enforcement, I studied. I worked in the private sector. I became an EMT. So I started going towards, back then they had uh, what's called an intermediate an EMT, which is just under a medic. You had to learn how to do EKGs and pharmacology and all that stuff. So I was studying that then before I got into law enforcement. Then once I became a cop, man, I can't tell you how many times I've done compressions you know on kids pulling out of the pool or people having cardiac arrest or on the scene of an accident you know I, I lost count how many times I was doing this but it wasn't until after my own cardiac arrest which had no diagnosis I had to go through and start figuring out why did I die is this going to happen again am I going to pass on some unknown genetic trait to my kid and during this time my wife after my cardiac arrest started medical school so while she was going through and studying to become a cardiovascular perfusionist she was educating my knuckle dragon ass. So I was working with her. She was kind of helping me out. And then I started getting brought into the state and I started working for the Arizona Department of Health Services. And I started working with some of the most renowned cardiac researchers in the world. Guys like Dr. Ben Balboro, who created Hands-On CPR with Dr. Kern at U of A. These guys started bringing me into the circle and they're like, oh yeah, meet this guy from Japan, meet this guy from Norway. These guys are the leaders in their fields in this. So I started hanging around these guys and if they, they were bringing me to share my story of survival and talk about law enforcement aspects. But you, like you said, if you're going to be a speaker, you better know your audience. So I can't go over there using generic terms for lay, lay persons or first responders. If I didn't speak the language and look like I was knowledgeable in it, they wouldn't take me serious if I had anything to contribute. So I really had to hit the books and I had to study this. And I started going into research publications and diving into it. But I'm, dude, I was that ADHD kid in class that was always in trouble, but I can hyper-focus on things and I can get obsessive. So once I started diving into the cardiac stuff, especially after it took my life, I deep dove into all of this so I could be as knowledgeable as possible. So not only when I write articles, but also when I implement training programs and I work with experts to say, this is what I'm thinking and this is why, let's talk about this. I know exactly where I'm going and how I'm going to take that direction. And that's something that kind of like a superpower. I know how to turn that on and off and I want to hyper-focus on things. So that's kind of how I got into that. <laughs> that's that's a cool story. Uh, how many speaking engagements do you do a year roughly do you know oh man you know i never tallied it up I'm, I'm pretty fortunate the fact that people keep calling me to do this it's not something i actively 
try to market or go after. But, you know, this year alone, we were at Axon Accelerate, um, IACP, Health and Wellness. We did Blue Paws. We did uh, 100 Clubs work. We did, I'm trying to think. I always spoke at the National Native American Law Enforcement Association. I do a couple, about a dozen or more podcasts per year. I usually try to do one or two a month. Um, and then I've done well, all I'm honored. I'm honored that you came on to this one. Um, but I'd like to go back to the beginning of your speaking career. Did you like, did you hire a marketing agency? I'm curious to like your journey of how you actually got onto your first stage and you started to actually present to these different companies. So mine was not your traditional route. The first thing I did was die and come back. So as soon as I survived my cardiac arrest, uh, I was immediately labeled damaged goods. My police department, I was working for a municipal agency at the time. They labeled me damaged goods. They were like, get the hell out of here. We can't have a cop with a defibrillator in his chest. He's too much of a liability. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. We got guys that are 60, 70 pounds overweight. You got guys with insulin pumps. You got guys with all these other conditions that are ticking time bombs. I just made SWAT. I'm an FTO. I'm a defensive tactics instructor. I can outrun. I can outfight. I can outbench all these guys. And you're telling me I'm unfit for duty just because I have a medical device that may or may not shock me if I needed it. I said, bullshit. So I got pissed and I started going in. How do I fight the state? How do I fight risk management? How do I go back to my job? I was not going to take no for it. You're not going to, you're not going to cast me aside and tell me that I'm damaged goods. So I had to bring in researchers and I started contacting people at the time, the state, um, EMS and trauma director who ran all the programs for the state happened to be a cardiac arrest researcher and happened to be one of the creators of hands only CPR. So when he reached out to me to do research on cardiac arrest, I said, look, I will help you if you will help me. I want to go back to work. How do I prove that I'm safer? If I'm not just as safe, I am safer than any cop out there. But right now, if you have a cardiac arrest on duty, you need CPR and defibrillator instantly. And you still only have about a 10% chance of survival. Me, if I go down, I get shocked instantly before I even lose consciousness because of this thing implanted in my chest. And I can show you all the numbers and statistics for cops, but I had to prove that aspect in order to go back to the field and go back to full active duty. It took six months and I had to do a lot of fighting, but I was successful and my assistant chief at the time, Mark Mann, had my back and I returned to full active duty. But when this happened, that cardiac arrest researcher says, hey, we're doing this event. I'm, uh, he did a bunch of conferences per year for fire, for EMS, for hospitals. He also ran the CPR University at University of Arizona. He said, Brandon, I want you to come speak for me. And I said, hell no. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a, I'm a street, I'm a, I'm a knuckle dragon operator. I'm a street cop. Like, you don't want me up there dropping F-bombs. You don't want me up there running my ADHD mind off all over the place. No, I'm not interested. He goes, look, come out to this event. If you want to speak, speak. If not, just sit there and wave. I'm like, all right, I can do that. Thanks to he helped me get my job back. I owed it to the guy, right? So I show up to this event and another cardiac arrest survivor was speaking and everything she was saying resonated with me. I was like, holy crap. I didn't realize the mental health aspects and everything else she was going with. So I was like, you know what? I can do this. So I got up and I shared my story of survival and I talked about what happened with me and my wife. And right afterwards, literally, this girl came up with her parents afterwards. She goes, you know, can I talk to you? Yeah, sure. She had a congenital defect in her heart and insurance wouldn't cover her implanted defibrillator. So basically, she was waiting for the day she was going to die. And she says, you know, can I talk to you about what you experienced in death? I'm just curious because it's probably going to happen to me. So I sat and I talked to her and her parents and it was like this weight was lifted off her. And I was like, she heard her parents give me this big old hug and I was like, holy shit, there is something to this public speaking thing. Like if I, if I can reach a couple people, there's something to it. So I started kind of 
Well, it started with helping law enforcement do consulting and training, helping them implement policies and training programs and helping them get grants for life-saving devices like AEDs and tourniquets and Narcan and all that stuff that we're currently using. I started speaking to agencies and sharing my story of survival. And I was like, hey, we're going to have this conference. Do you want to come speak over here? Hey, you know, we're going to be doing this event. How would you feel about doing this? And then all of a sudden, when I started working in the cardiac community, I ended up sitting as the uh, board member for several cardiac organizations. And then they were hosting events. And I started speaking at cardiac organizations and law enforcement events. And I just kind of rolled from there. And then all of a sudden, you got private companies calling me out to speak and talk to their sales teams and do this. And they just kind of it happened organically. It was not something I ever sought out to do. I was never like, so how long would you say you've been a speaker? If you want to say how long before I started accepting funds for it, <laughs> or how I've been speaking for quite some time, you know, I've been, I've been very comfortable sitting in front of people. I mean, even before I was a cop, I was a, I was an avid martial artist. I started training when I was four. By the time I was in high school, I was teaching knife tactics to military. So I was very comfortable instructing and teaching military and police I was a field training officer, firearms instructor. So I got very used to teaching at the academies and doing field scenarios. But when it came to actually speaking and delivering messages, there's very different types of speaking. You know, there's yes. there's educational speaking, there's inspirational speaking, there's message, there's all kinds of different things you have to know. So I had to learn all these nuances kind of on the fly and go, okay, well, that worked, that didn't work. This worked for this audience. Don't say that to this audience. <laughs> um, I would say I probably began speaking in regards to law enforcement resuscitation and cardiac arrest realities, probably in 2014. So about nine, almost 10 years now. And then it wasn't until after we started doing the the non-proc because before I wasn't, I wasn't doing it to make money. I was trying to help people and being able to convince cops to get their checks, to get, take care of themselves, to make changes, to um, implement life-saving programs that was part of my mission, right? This is how I earned my second chance at life. So it was never about money, but once you started the nonprofit, I was like, well, hey, if you come speak to this, we'd like to donate to your nonprofit and we'll cover your travel expenses. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, we could, we could, we could always use more support to buy cops, replacement pads and batteries and training like. So then I started speaking and putting the funds into the, the, funds into the nonprofit. So I just kind of, it rolled from there. I'm not some big speaker. Like, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is a good friend and he's come and spoken for us. And, you know, he does 200 something engagements per year. Like I'm lucky if I do six to 12 paid speaking gigs per year, but it's that's nothing, not, that's, that's nothing not crazy. terrible. That's not terrible though. Do you uh, put on your own events as well for we the nonprofit? Yeah. So, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we had our shield of hearts 23 and that's where Sheriff Lamb came and spoke for us. We was held at the embassy suites, Biltmore, we do our, our uh, silent auctions and our raffles and we got sponsors and we had, you know, it was catered by Arizona barbecue catering company. And we do other events like carbine builders and mountain bike heart spikes. And we do, you know, we're working on a wellness event right now. It's going to incorporate yoga and heart checks and different resources for first responders, like different things like that. We try to keep it interesting because, you know, cops and firefighters and EMS, we don't ever want to spend money. We don't ever want to do anything. So if you don't make it cool and you don't make it worth their time, they're not going to show up. You know, <laughs> you ever do hot yoga, Bikram hot yoga? I am not, man. I have not tried that yet. Is it worthwhile? I do it like once or twice a year. I like it. I, I'm not a like a regular. My my girl's a nurse and she is a regular yoga practitioner. Every morning she's doing her stretches. That's not really for I like to just go to the gym and, you know, throw weights around. <laughs> Dude, uh, I started getting into the HIIT workouts because the, the cardiac meds, they slow down your metabolism, they slow down your heart rate, they mess with sperm motility, they, they mess you up, dude. 
So I had to start doing high intensity interval training just to counteract that stuff. And then I started incorporating that with cold water immersion and it's been. And the doctor said no problem. Now I would think the cold water immersion would slow your heart rate. You know, once you get used to it, it's more for regulation of blood sugar. It's more for the muscle recovery and it's more for mental stimulation and just doing hard, uncomfortable shit. It really helps out, especially after doing a, a intense hit workout, being able to jump in my pool in the middle of winter and be able to sit there for, you know, three minutes or so shaking is it, it definitely helps in the recovery and it helps with the mental side of it, too. You know what I mean? It's more on yeah. the mental side, but yes, it's more for blood pressure regulation and it actually speeds up recovery. It doesn't so much slow your metabolism and all that. I mean, the ice, in theory, you would think it would slow that down, but the hit workouts actually increase it. What state are you in now? I'm in Arizona. Okay, so when I think of Arizona, I think of the 100-degree day heat, right? We went uh, – we love Arizona, by the way. That's like uh, top three of places we'd like to live. But we went in February, and we were shocked at how cold it could get at nighttime. Like, people don't realize, yeah, Arizona gets hot during the summer, but some of those nights can drop down to, like, ridiculous – ridiculous swings in in temperature it's so different because when i go to the east coast and i go places you guys have all the humidity it's a different kind of cold but when you come out here it's dry and when you get that dry cold it goes to the bone so i mean there'd be times out on patrol where it gets especially uh i was working in a municipal agency with 608 square miles and we had a lot of agriculture community in different spots man when they got the dew point out there you'd be in the 20s and you'd be freezing you know you got to be kidding me like it just goes through the bone but i mean that Really, yeah, everyone knows Arizona for the hot summers and whatnot, but really it only sucks for three months. Like June, once it gets about June, July, August, yeah, it can get up to 120 something and it's all dry, but the rest of the year is phenomenal. Like, you know, our winters, like right now today, the high is like 76 and the low is like in the the low 50s. It's nothing crazy. Like, but when you go up north, you can go up to higher altitude in Flagstaff where there's snowball and you can go skiing and snowboarding. You can go up. the, The great thing about Arizona is you can go an hour or two in any direction i have a completely different change i can go up to the red rocks sedona i can go mountain biking i can go to the sand dunes i can go to the lake i can go to the snow like you can do anything you want out here you can go to the city life like that's what i love about arizona our last trip our last trip was to sedona and we drove over to the grand canyon um one of the waitresses said don't get red rock fever because they said you know you want to move here Yeah, we we trained and equipped Sedona Police Department. We just got a hundred thousand dollar grant for Flagstaff last year, so we work we work heavily in northern Arizona. We're working with Coconino County Sheriff's Office, so I get up there as much as possible. I take my kids up there. We go rock climbing. We go hiking. We get out in the just in the fresh pine air. We love it, man. So I went on one of the very best hikes I ever had was on South Mountain, uh, in Phoenix. It, there's this valley in there and and there was some guy that was just like kind of like jogging through there and um but there was a lot of other walkers too that was one of the best hikes i ever had and it was it wasn't too treacherous it wasn't too crazy um but we were way up above the city oh yeah that's that's just south mountain that's popular i mean that's the that's where the phoenix academy and the dps academy is at so uh, in the academy you're running that mountain you're running on south mountain you have the obstacle course set up up there and you're out there. That's they have the hell hill, all that stuff. So, I mean, that's just, it's, it's a part of life. Like I literally outside my window back here, I'm up to the mountains right behind my house. So I always, I always want to live close to the mountains, 
so I can walk from my garage and hop on my bike and go hit a trail. So, I mean, that's one of the things I love about here is wherever you want to go, whether you want to be on the outskirts of the city, if you want to be out, you can be right next to a mountain and go hit it. In April or May, I want to come out and take a hike with you. And uh, you just show me show me some good spots, all right? You ever been mountain biking? I have. Uh, I actually was in the bike unit for 10 years, which I tell everybody was way too long. But I thought I thought that I'd retire out of that unit because um, you got to do law enforcement, but you also got to do community things. And I got to wear shorts in the summer. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a fun unit, man. Like we we started our bike unit for our last agency, man. We started working with our community action team. So we had guys setting up stings and actually sneaking up on dudes and bikes on drug deals on you know, uh, vehicle stings. Like it wasn't just what you picture bike cops doing. Like right. it was fun stuff. And then people don't realize how badass some of those guys are. Yeah. I loved, I love, love, love the bike unit. Um, mostly because the the training that we went to was like one of my very best weeks on the job when the, we went to bike school and we did uh mountain biking we did a few different types of environments we did mountain biking we did a parking lot we did some uh some stairs city environment and then we did some trails like two of the days were trails and uh that was one of my very best days on the job did you did you have a favorite unit that you worked in and uh you worked for two departments right or two or three yeah you know i've i've been really fortunate man when i started my career this was in the recession and i worked for an agency that was in the midst of a huge growth for our city i mean at the time the municipal agency i worked for went from like twelve thousand people to like a hundred thousand people so i went from being on a squad of like three guys to all of a sudden we got eight nine man squads with 680 square miles so it was like hey you're going to go to FTO school. I'm like, I've only been on for like two and a half, three years. What do you mean I'm going to FTO? I'm not ready to be an FTO. They're like, we don't have a choice. We don't have enough guys. You're better than the other options. Go. I was like, okay, you get voluntold. Like, hey, you're a martial artist. You're going to defensive tactics instructor school. Hey, you're, you're great <laughs> at firearms. You're going to be a firearms instructor. So I was like, okay. I got thrown into a lot very quickly where most guys, you have to earn it. You have to be around for, you know, five, seven, eight years before you even get an opportunity to go to some of those units. I was voluntold into them and I started being like, all right, this is cool. So we had to even start our own units. Like our, our criminal apprehension unit was called the community action team. And we had, we were a very proactive agency. So we were able to, on double squad days, we put together this unit that would switch out with other people and teach them how to do plainclothes operations. So we would set up uh, stings for bikes and laptops and, you know, fake guns and vehicles and wait for people to break into them. We would say we would go after um, we'd go warrant hunting. We'd go That's after cool. drug houses like but it was guys on patrol that would double squad days and we rotate out. So guys could be able to join the unit. They have to test to be into it and they go back. And it, it was such a blast because you got to be really creative. And, you know, you start using guys with different resources that knew. How was to that your favorite? Was that your favorite unit? You know what? Like, what surprises me is uh, I never really wanted to be a field trading officer, but I think my favorite was probably being an FTO. I I never thought I didn't want to do it. I got voluntold into it, and as soon as I started becoming an FTO, I realized the impact you can make on people for their entire Huge. career. Huge. And you set the tone for the culture, and you know, being able to see those breakthroughs when you had guys that came through, or you know, young gals that maybe weren't comfortable with their combative skills taking them going to the mat, taking them on the range and getting them proficient, then watching them use it on somebody and watching that eureka moment when they're like, holy shit, this works. And I just knocked that guy out or, Hey, 
I'm understanding this now, like, being able to see them do their first, like go code three for the first time and all that. Like it was so rewarding. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Now that I'm in the training division with Pinal County, I love um, my bread and butter is high performance resuscitation, teaching you that, but it's weird because I'll go from the firearms and DT side. One day I'm teaching you how to stop threats and take lives. And the next yeah. day we're teaching you how to apply tourniquets and do, do high performance compressions and apply AEDs and save lives. And it's like, it's that life and death dichotomy. Most people don't realize that officers are trained to do that after they've stopped the threat. Um, it actually surprises a lot of people that, and it surprises officers too, that, you know, you go into that, that mode of, oh my God, I just like, you're still in shock of what just happened. And now you have to try and save that person. Um, Not just that, but we are on scene first. So 90% of the time to all this shit. And if you look at the numbers alone, last year we had 1176 fatal police shootings, right? Yeah. 107,000 Americans died from drug overdoses. 42,000 Americans died from motor vehicle accidents. 60,000 from uncontrolled bleeding and almost 700,000 Americans died from heart disease. The reality is we are more likely to save lives than we're ever going to have to take it. Yeah, you started going on. We're on scene first pulling kids out of pools. We're on scene first on motor vehicle accidents, slapping tourniquets on people. We're suicide attempts. We're the ones that are plugging up bullet holes. We're the ones that are taking care of the overdose patients using Narcan. We beat fire and EMS 90% of the time. And we're usually on scene in the first four minutes. We they hate, the, they hate the term second second responders. They are the second responders, <laughs> man. You look at NFPA standards. I mean, they have their their goal is six and a half minutes and 90% of their calls. And none of them are at. You start doing public records requests, fire and EMS, our system is not set up to succeed. Like, for instance, when I had my cardiac arrest, I lived half a mile from the fire station. You figure anything ever happens, I'm good to go. Well, those guys were on a call. They were with the diabetic patient, right? They can't toss them a Snickers and be like, hey, good luck. We got to go to somebody else. So the next closest unit got dispatched. Well, they were on a car accident. So the next closest unit got dispatched. It took them nine and a half minutes to get to me. So my wife and the first officer that got on scene were doing compressions on me for nine and a half minutes before the first crew arrived and were able to start dumping drugs and doing O2 and all the fun stuff. So, I mean, it's just we're on scene first and we're set up to succeed. We're not four guys on one truck or two guys on the ambulance responding, you got squads, you got a whole army of cops. And unlike fire and EMS, if I'm on some bullshit barking dog call or some shoplifting and someone's dying across the street, I'm required to break. So right. that's where cops are making the biggest difference. We have more life saves from drug overdose reversals and more life saves from bleeding control than fire and EMS combined. When we start getting all these cops AEDs and high-performance training, you're going to see survival skyrocket that you've never seen before. We just got to get more agencies to buy into it. Because back in the day, it was, you know, we're cops, we're not firefighters. Well, no, we're not. But I'm already doing compressions on your kid to collapse in basketball practice. Why not give me the tools to save his life? <laughs> I once heard us uh, described as the Swiss Army knife of public servants. You know, you're like you really do everything. Everything you just described. We're out there pulling kids from... Uh, from pools, doing CPR, uh, saving people from gunshot wounds, and talking uh, people off of bridges. I mean, you yeah, yeah. everything. You got to be a counselor. You got to be a social worker. Oh wait, man, this guy's going crazy. How do we turn the power off for this thing? You have to know basic construction. Like you gotta, you have to know math. You have to know everything in order to do this job at the basic level. Right? Even if you want to become advanced in different things, you want to go into like SWAT operations. You got to learn whole other skill sets. That's why I believe that first responders and the second responders. <laughs> That's why I believe that we're natural problem solvers and 
we can transition into coaching and training so easily because we are natural problem solvers. So that's why I have that belief that we don't, we don't realize the skills that we have from the job. So many people think that being a security guard is their only, or starting a security guard agency is their only option or uh, going into real estate because they have so many contacts with people um, but there's so many other options out there. There's someone out there that teaches going from cop to corporate world, which I don't know why anyone would want to do that after being independent <laughs> and then going into corporate world. I used to think that I wanted to become a teacher because I do enjoy teaching. But the more I thought about it, the, the closer I got to retirement, I was like, I'm going to teach on my own terms. I don't want to be stuck in a classroom. I thought I was going to be a history teacher because I enjoy history. And I enjoy social studies. They came naturally to me. Those were the easy subjects for me. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, I don't want to be stuck in a building somewhere, you know, for eight hours and having to answer to parents and students. I'll tell you what gets most of us is there's a culture shock and there's a huge shift in mentality and work ethic. It's not like what we've been used to for decades. So when you transition out and you start going to the corporate or the civilian world, man, a lot of guys would sink or swim. Cause I mean, yes, we have different skill sets and we're very good problem solvers, but can you operate in that in different environments? Like, you know, when, you, when it comes down to when it's all about money or it comes about quotas or it comes about office and woke policies and stuff like that, cops don't do well in a lot of those environments. So they have to learn and pick and choose where are they going to go? What are they going to say? Because I mean, I, even for me, man, I figured. And when you're in first, when you're a first responder and you're in public safety, it's on a mannequin and go, you're, you're certified. Get out of here, right? <laughs> you nothing. over that? You call nine one one. Yeah, all those videos are are BS and they're they're designed for bystanders, and we're not we're not EMTs, we're not medics, we don't have the same standard of training and care, but we're also required first responders. We have to provide medical aid. So we fall smack dab in the middle of that and no one knows what to do with us. You have, most agencies don't have a direct relationship with the medical director. Most of them don't do high performance training. It's like you see those training flaws when they actually have to use a tourniquet on somebody when they're wound packing. They just put a piece of cloth over and press hard. You're like, no, you have to get in the wound and stop the bleed. Like pack that shit in there. <laughs> Teaching them different realities of uh, medical response they suck at it. So we had to create our training program from scratch and bring in different experts. And we, we incorporate tactics and evidence preservation, and we do all reality-based training. So we got role players, we got bleeding simulators, we got evaluators going at you. We do TCCC and officer down with sims and blanks, and we make it as real as possible so we can actually teach you guys how to thrive in that environment. Uh, when I was on patrol, we didn't have tourniquets. We, we had O2 packs and, and, uh, and a and ad packs <laughs> and if and and for most cases it was throw some ot on them and wait for their uh, ems to show up wait for the fire department and if it wasn't that then i just was kind of twiddling my thumbs um uh, waiting for ems actually a, a couple of guys and gals got in trouble for that recently because on body cam um they're kind of standing over someone that's having a situation and i think the person expires and dies and they got in trouble because they didn't take action these ambulance chasing attorneys are suing cops left and right for negligence and failure to provide aid 
and it's not the cop's fault when they're culture. I, I'll tell you, man, I consult all around the country and you got chiefs of police and you got command staff members that go, if I wanted to be a firefighter, I would have put in a different application and we don't do that shit. I tell my guys not to provide aid. I'm like, well, great chief. You just, you just inherited all that vicarious liability because the law in your state requires you to provide aid. If you're telling you guys not to do that, you just absorb that. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Our public, especially now, there's the body cameras documenting you. If you're sitting on scene doing jack and shit, you're gonna be you're gonna get sued in court. Yeah. And the problem is that guys aren't getting good training. Some firefighter comes in and shows you how to put a tourniquet on, and that's your training. If you have that, you know, some guy comes in and teaches you how to do compressions from an American Heart or Red Cross, you know, civilian program, and they're like, "Hey, you're good, right?" And you go out there, and that mom hands you that blue baby and expects you to yeah. save the day. It's a different game. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. Am I doing back slaps? No, that's for choking. Is it one finger? Is it one hand? Is it two fingers? We don't want guys questioning that reality when someone's life is actually on the line. And most of these programs don't meet those needs. They're not searching patients. We, we got EMTs getting stabbed all around the country because cops aren't searching people before they throw them in the back of an ambulance. They're not looking for drugs. They're not taking care of all the, all the things we normally do as cops. It's so segregated. This is medical versus this is criminal. That's bullshit. When we're cops and we're on scene first, it all blends together. We have case yeah. law to support it. We have high performance training. We have stress inoculation. You know, we spend all this time on the range doing force on force and low light. And we do sim rounds, which is great. I'm a fire instructor. I'm all about that. But when it comes to our life-saving skills, what? how often do you guys train out there? How often do you get a CPR or stop the bleed class? Every one to five years, maybe? Yes. Yes. I, that's what I was going to say. One one to three, one to two years. If you're, I, I think they have to recertify for EMT once a week every year, but sometimes I'm not talking work. about EMTs. I'm talking about line level patrol guys that are actually there first having to deal with somebody who's bleeding to death. They just slit their neck or slit their wrist. All of our officers are EMTs also. Oh, no kidding. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a pretty large department and they're all EMTs. So uh, you guys are ahead have, of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're um, and and they have a medcat unit as well. So they have one guy out there who's uh, almost a, a uh, paramedic, basically. So yeah, we're definitely ahead of the game. Um, I know there's some smaller departments that it's not like that at all. <laughs> I go to some places that after they graduate the academy, they never train on it again. Oh, they don't have EMT training. They don't have anything. And it's like, hey, you're expected to save someone's life, but we're not going to give you any training. We're not going to give you any equipment. And these guys are responding to gunshot victims. They're responding to motor vehicle accidents and you know motorcycle amputations. Like all these different crazy things are happening in front of them. They're expected to save a life with no, with almost no training and no resources. Which is it's why the same. It's the same with defensive tactics. If you train for four weeks in your academy, let's just say you got a massive four weeks or a massive six weeks. And then you never train a day again for your whole career. Four years later, you're rolling around with someone. You're not going to remember the technique that you learned in the Academy that you, and if that's you don't not muscle memory. They're perishable skills and you have to understand how you're going to operate and how you're going to shut people down and when to use different escalations and when not to. These guys don't study it. So I see all these cops getting hurt and see all these guys not knowing how to perform We've got a real leadership crisis and everybody wants us to do everything, but they don't want to give you the training for it. And we have to prioritize life and death. So that means your medical calls. That means your defensive tactics, your firearms programs, the stuff that have the highest risks.
I um I want to respect your time because I appreciate you hopping on. And uh, I just I'm going to end with my regular last five questions that I ask everybody. What's your definition of a hero? I know it's a tough I know it's a tough question. <laughs> Someone that's willing to go above and beyond regular means to actually help somebody. I mean, that could be it doesn't have to be, you know, jumping in, going into a burning building, but going out of your way to help somebody who can never truly pay you back. And when um, you're starting to feel stressed out, how do you relieve the stress? How do you save yourself or how do you show yourself love? Masturbation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I saw your face on that one. You're the first no. one that gave that answer. Come on, yeah. man. You gotta, you gotta have you gotta lighten this up, man. Everyone goes. Actually, so there might have been there might have been another another woman that might have said something similar. <laughs> and I gotta be careful because I'm a CEO, I run a nonprofit. People be like, what do you say? No, for when it comes to Elon Musk was smoking weed on the Joe Rogan <laughs> podcast. So <laughs> while being the CEO of two major companies and none of his board liked it. And you know what? He got so much press from it. So you be you and don't worry about. No, but for, like, for real, I, I love mountain biking. Anytime I can get outdoors and hit the trails, mountain biking is where it's at. My family time, man. I have two kids. My wife is incredible. Once I get to hang out with them, do a little decompression, you know, throw the phone aside and go out with them. It, it's, it's a good day for me, man. Plus, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a comic book nerd being able to, you know, read Ninja Turtle comics with my son or being able to watch the cartoons or something like that. Like that's my, that's my happy place when I can hang out with the family or go outdoors or go shooting or do something fun like that, that, that gets my mind disconnected from all the, all the noise. So when my kids were coming up, we would watch uh DBZ or avatar the last style vendor, you know, not the style vendor, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I <laughs> the, got last, you, I got you. the last avatar, I'm confusing UFC. I'm a huge UFC fan. So uh, we would watch the last airbender. And um, now with my girlfriend's kids, we watch Clone Wars on Disney Plus. So, nice. So, you know, there's like seven or eight seasons of it. So there's so many episodes that we just sit down to a few episodes of that every night. I am a huge comic book not comic book the, the 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 comics but comic book movies i love everything marvel everything dc even the ones that they say aren't that great i still love them i i eat them up and uh that brings me to my uh second to last question for you uh what's your power today you had mentioned it in the beginning of the show like in the middle you said uh what's your greatest ability uh, definitely uh you said something was your superpower yeah being able to get hyper focused because I, I i am that diagnosed adhd kid i was every teacher's nightmare growing up like but when i get fixated on something that i want to learn or something that i'm passionate about i go out like a rabid dog like i will just dive into it and i can't lose interest like i will read every study every publication i'll watch videos i'll talk to the experts like i will chase after things when i'm passionate about it, whether that be tactics or martial arts like i'm a lifelong martial artist or whether i'm down going after resuscitation stuff and learning about heart disease like I what style do... i now that leads me to two questions because i'm just curious what <laughs> styles of martial arts did you study so growing up i was in uh horangdo which was founded by dr jusung lee and jubong lee i trained out of them which came out of the shila dynasty and then i also uh once i got into martial arts uh, sorry once i got into law enforcement 
I started training with, at the time, Craft International. Uh, Rigo Durazo is their combative instructor. And once I started getting into Kali and Silat from the Seca system, I was just like, holy shit, I've been doing everything. Because martial arts to civilians and everything has been so desensitized over the generations. And you start looking at all these guys are adopting BJJ and, and Muay Thai yes. and MMA because you're actually testing it against real people. But it's not true true violence where you're actually trying to take somebody out when you're talking about really right. shutting down a human being it's a whole different ball game when you're talking about neck breaks and taking out people's eyes and taking out genitals and it's a whole different thing when someone crab really maga your crab magas your movie ties all the bjjs and once but once i started getting into kali and sila and being like, okay now i can translate these 20 years 25 years of skills that i built up from the time i was four the streets became my lab. I was like, okay, now that I've learned how to do these cross best checks and I learned how to use the proper body mechanics, how do I make this joint lock that I used to love work in an actual combat situation when someone's flailing at me high on meth or on bath salts back in the day, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah It was yeah. like, how do I make this work? So it became my lab and I call my guru and be like, Hey man, I just did this. I totally knocked him out by doing the biggest nerve strike. I did this. And when you start figuring it out and studying things like Wing Chong and all that, you, you get a whole different perspective when you start studying other arts but so many guys just get fixated on this is my thing and i'm gonna do this judo i'm gonna do this this uh this movie tie stuff but then when they their world crumbles when you put a different style of pressure on it when you start seeing that someone's got a different level of intelligence you start tweaking it their world crumbles. i'm a huge fan of wrestling huge fan of bjj huge fan of uh all martial arts really but i do want to do wing chung just as I'm getting older, um, I don't I don't like being tossed around on the mat so much anymore. <laughs> so uh, I just want to keep my body as fresh and, and as young as humanly possible. Once you learn the body mechanics side of wrestling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you start learning how to do judo and throws, like strikes become easy, right? Being well, able I, to no, I, I like it. I like boxing, but I don't like getting hit in the head. <laughs> But, you know, I remember just talking to, uh, you know, Rigo Durazo training with him. And I remember being like, oh, I'm going to try this. This is what BJJ does. And he's like, boom, and he headbutts me. I'm like, <laughs> he let go. I'm on the ground. I'm like, you know what? If they allowed headbutting in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it would be a completely different thing. Like, you start looking at it going, holy shit. As soon as they try to wrap you up, if you're actually destroying people's teeth and breaking their noses, it's a whole different ball game. And it's like. I guess I can't do that move on somebody who's high on meth that actually wants to hurt me because the first thing they're going to do is lock up or bam. And you're like, it only takes you to get busted in the nose one time to realize that I'm not going to do that when I'm actually fighting somebody again. <laughs> I'm well, going to shut them down a different I way. Would, I wouldn't recommend the guard being on bottom. You're, you're talking about the guard specifically. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't, I just, re- I wouldn't recommend the guard for anybody in a, whether it's law enforcement or anybody being in a in a true fight, like the guard is good for sport, but being in a true fight, I wouldn't recommend anyone being on bottom because that's where you're going to take the greatest amount of damage. And um, so my son wrestled, all three of my sons wrestled uh, from kindergarten on. Cause, and I always told parents, hey, if you don't want your kid to get bullied, put them in wrestling. I am a nope. huge my huge fan of wrestling. My neighbor was a uh, county champion, and I think he might have been a state champion, but he was just a really good wrestler. Tall, lanky, skinny, 
And he would do all kinds of things to cut weight, like throw up and make himself throw up. Cra crazy things to cut weight. He cut a tremendous amount. It wasn't really healthy for him. No. But uh, that being aside, I love wrestling. I love BJJ. I love the stand-up martial arts as well, you know, um, because where does everything begin? It begins on the feet. So I am a huge, huge fan of all martial arts. I tell everyone, like, you have to train in something. You cannot just think that the training that you got two years ago, three years ago is going to kick in when you need it. You have to be prepared for those situations. You have to be mentally prepared, and then you have to be physically prepared for those scenarios that might come up. But um, you got to find out what works for you, because you know what works for somebody else may not work for the next guy. Yeah. Some people like boxing, some people like wrestling, right. some people like this. If it works for you and you're proficient in it, keep it up. Like so, for boxing, I just like the defensive movements. I want to know how to roll my shoulders. You know the. Floyd Mayweather style roll. Yeah. Roll, roll a punch, pull from the punch when it's just inches from your face. You know, I want all of that to be second nature so that I, I watch this guy a couple. I watch a couple of videos on YouTube where the guy is just like giving random people gloves and he's like, hit me if you can. And, and, and he puts his hands behind his back and he's just rolling with everything and he's just watching and he's just moving his head. And sometimes he might like, if someone's pretty good, he might have to, put up a block and parry their, their hand a little bit. You know, that's for someone that's throwing straighter punches. You might have to parry a little bit, but I just love all of those defensive. Uh, and, and they usually say, Hey, don't try this in a real fight. This is just for demonstration. <laughs> it, <laughs> uh, but I love those videos where you see people just moving defensively and showing that if you get good at that one skill, it's you're actually very hard to hit. Anderson Silver was one of my Anderson and George St. Pierre. I love those two uh, for the way that they fought. George combined karate with wrestling. And, and, and also he was a complete mixed martial artist, but he really combined, combined the karate distancing and the timing and with, creation, the French wrestling and stuff, right? And strength, with, yeah. with the wrestling, he combined it so well and Anderson had that head movement. He had it down so well that he looked like he was in the matrix. He looked like he was like doing stuff that like, like, oh my God, how does he move like that? So I, I've just like, I've been a huge combat sports fan since the days of Mike Tyson and just going out there and obliterating people. You know, Mike Tyson would use that, that peekaboo in and out, you know, you know what I mean? Oh, dude, I, I, I really, still, I quote him all the time, man. I still love his. Everyone's got a, everyone's got a plan. Punch in the face, like I love get punched in the face. And then yeah, my, I that's one of my top favorite quotes. And the other one by Carlson Gracie is, "You punch a black belt in the face, he becomes a brown belt. You punch him again, he becomes a blue belt." <laughs> I can't. I like keep it. punching him. You keep punching him, they become a white belt. That's that's Carlson Gracie. So, uh, yeah. I'm I'm a huge fan as well. Back to the mountain biking. I'm afraid of anything that can like break bones. <laughs> so like if I do happen to hop on a bike, you got to take it easy on me. So there's we different be, styles, man. Yeah, you I was say we can't trails, be going down downhill like we can't be going down a double double black diamond. 
<laughs> no, no, no. We can take you across, you know, the cross country style ones and do some leg burners and do some slow descents and get you comfortable with it, man. I would, uh, I don't ever take somebody out there that's not comfortable with mountain biking. Be like, all right, we're going to bomb down this cliff. It's like, no. We're going to go <laughs> down this double black diamond down the side of this mountain. Go, let's go. No, you can't do that, man. That's what people get killed. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I don't ski, I don't snowboard, and I don't go down the sides. We last time we were in, uh, I want to say Phoenix. It might have been, it might have been Sedona. We saw this guy on a mountain bike, and he went up the double black diamond, and it said, "This trail is not for beginners." And she's like, "Well, we're walking." She's like, "How hard can it be?" Next thing we know, we find ourselves on the side of a mountain and I'm like walking sideways and I'm like, this was your idea. And I'm giving it a death stare and I'm like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I love going up there. man. Every time I go up there to work, we always try to go mountain biking in Sedona area, man. It's a fun spot. Yeah, we love we love Sedona. Uh, we really love Phoenix. Phoenix is not that it's a very uh, spread out area. But the city itself is not not very big, right? Like you can no, drive. When through... it comes to square miles, we're like second for the second in the country for square miles. We're spread out, man. That's the nice thing about it is you don't have to you, you can go downtown and do all the congestion stuff, but like anywhere in the valley, man, you can go to Tempe or, or Scottsdale right. and do any of the city life you're into. You don't have to just go to one spot like in certain cities around the country. Yes. Yes. All right. My last question for you, and I'll let you go because I Really respect you. Your I can't believe you didn't want to hear the story, man. Every podcast host I usually contacts me for my story, my story of survival. We haven't even touched it yet, but all right. <laughs> yeah, I no, you touched on dying. All right. Yeah. Most people are like, oh, they want the story, and I go through that. You're the first host that hasn't had me open with it. <laughs> no, no, because you know why? I try to I try to keep it more conversational and just like talk about you know, I, I don't want I don't want to bring you on and have you talk about the same thing that you like it gets boring for you as the I'm guest. with you man it works for me I like it so like I like to find things that we love in common so like we love martial arts we love comics we we love law enforcement and we love the people the men and women that do the job we actually love those people so like that's where I differ. I I don't want to just talk about you dying. I want to talk about the positive impact that you're making right now after the fact. Um, do you have a training that you just brought me to another question that I was wondering? Do you have a training company? Like, how do you make money with a non when you have a nonprofit? It's not supposed to make money. How do you how do you actually support your family and you know and, and actually make money to do the things that you need to do? A couple things. One, nonprofit does not mean that you do not generate revenue. Nonprofit, you have to be able to pay for your electricity. You have to be able to pay your instructors and contractors. You have to be able to pay for marketing. You have to be able to pay for your websites and your SEOs and all the things that make an organization work. Just because you're a nonprofit does not mean that you cannot charge for services and trainings, right? So um, we have multifaceted approaches to it. When it comes to the nonprofit side, we had to learn all of this as we go. We had to learn from the other consultants and people that work in the nonprofit space. But so we do multiple aspects like grants. So like, you know, we, for last year, we applied with a Health First Foundation in Northern Arizona. We got a six-figure grant to fully prepare, train, and equip Flagstaff Police Department for emergencies. 
So we did their dispatch protocols. We helped them with their policies. We helped them with the chain of command, the sustainability plan, their reporting, their medical direction, their legislation compliance. We trained all of their officers. We took, you know, several different days. We went up multiple times and we trained all of them in high performance cessation training. So grants are one way, but we also sell our training program. I have to be able to pay for replacement pads and batteries and tourniquets that wear out. And we have to pay for our travel costs and our hotels. And we have to pay for all these things. I have to pay these guys that are taking time from their families, from their streets, from their firehouses or whoever we're employing them from to come be my instructors and evaluators. So we can charge agencies. We can also do fundraisers. We can also do, we work with um, sponsors. We work with, you know, we have coffee with Real American Heroes Coffee and the proceeds from that goes towards our training programs. There's a whole bunch of different ways, man, but we also do consulting services. So when agencies say, hey man, we got AEDs, but the program, it never gets used. Well, are you being dispatched to them or does it go to the fire and EMS and maybe they might ask you to show up? Oh crap. But little things like that, being able to do consulting and sit down with them and say, this is what we recommend. This is how you get your program in compliance with legislation. Because most police department AED programs, the AED guys will come in and sell you an AED and move on to the next one. That program fails in the next two to four years because there's no medical direction. They didn't register them with the state. There's no tracking. There's no reporting. There's no nothing. And the program falls fat on its place and people are getting sued because they just half asset. It's not a band-aid. It's not a tourniquet you're going to put in the back of your car you may or may not use. You're responding to life and death emergencies all the time. Sorry, it looks like you want to ask a question. No, 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 no. I was going to say we, we, we talked about, you know, certain people that just want to make a sale and, <laughs> and just, you know, then they move on to the next to the next place, to the next place, to the next place. Whereas you're actually training agencies to be in compliance and to use the machines. Well, law enforcement is such a unique space, and you know this inherently. Like when you start looking at other industries and you have civilians running it, they don't understand how you operate. When you got a fire guy trying to tell you how to do your SOPs, he's never been in the shit. He doesn't understand the, the difference. They're focusing on the medical side of it, which is great, but you're not gonna tell you a fire, you're not gonna let a firefighter tell you how to pie a door, are you? You're not gonna let a firefighter come in and tell you how to respond to an active shooter, right? Why are we having them come in and tell us how to do these situations? When I'm doing CPR one-handed on an overdose patient, his uncle's in the room who I arrested two months ago with a felony warrant, and the fire guys are talking to me going, which house is it? I'm doing it one-handed. It's a different ball game that, that they haven't prepared for. So, I mean, we have to do things that are for law enforcement. And these, these organizations that come in and try to teach you in civilian, you call 911, you get an AED, <laughs> have no touch in what law enforcement actually does. And they're designed for bystanders and the programs fail for us and cops don't take it and we go in there and we you know, grab ass and play around and nobody pays attention to the video take 30 seconds because we have to we do the box check and we move on and then all of a sudden when it's your son or your daughter that collapses or when you're in the shit and your buddy's been shot and hypervolemia induces cardiac arrest and you don't have an aed and you're doing compressions on them and fire and ems refuse to come in because it's not safe for them what do you do then you watch your you, buddy die you piqued my curiosity uh, what is your signature story? <laughs> so, so uh, like I said, I was 26 when I had my cardiac arrest. My wife makes fun of me. I've been shot at. I've been in knife fights. I've been in, you know, I've been trapped under a vehicle in water rescue. Oh my I God. died at home reading a book. Like you just never know when your time is up. Right. So I remember sitting with my wife and I put my book down and I said, Hey, I'm going to take the dog out. I took two steps towards my den door and it was just like, you ever have someone jump out and scare you, you know, in your heart, yeah. it's that yeah. flutter, you know, imagine that, but you can't recover from it. You can't take your next breath. 
So I have this, this electrical storm thing going on in my heart and all of a sudden I can't breathe. Even though most cardiac arrest survivors don't remember their incidents, I remember all of this and I had time distortion. You know, in critical stress incidents, weird things happen, right? You know, you get auditory exclusion, you get tunnel vision, loss of fine motor skills. I had time distortion where everything just slowed way down. And I remember just bearing down going, oh, that's not right. And I remember trying to force myself to breathe. And I was like, all right, do combat breathing, do box breathing, you know, get lower your respirations rate. Well, it turns out when you're in ventricular fibrillation, when you're in cardiac arrest, there is no blood being pumped to your lungs. They physically, the alveoli cannot expand with oxygen. So I was in uh, agonal breathing. Going, oh my trying God. to so force you, myself. You couldn't even call 911 if you wanted to. I couldn't do it. I, no, mind you, I collapsed in about a second and a half of this happening. So I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even get my phone out of my pocket before collapsing, but everything just felt like slow motion to me. My wife turns around, sees my face as the darkest purple she'd ever seen. Like someone choked a Smurf. She sees this, pulls out her phone to call 911 as I collapse into my bookshelf. This is not the one behind me. This is at a different house. She goes to kind of brace me. Now I'm six foot four. My wife is five foot three. So I topple right over her. And I slam my head through the wall and I land on my hands and my knees but, you know, you got that that warrior mentality, never quit, stay in the fight. So I'm trying everything I can to think of. I'm just trying to stay present in that moment. I remember looking out in my hallway and my vision starts going dark, dark purple. Nothing like tunnel vision in the streets where it's hard to focus and things can get kind of blurry. It was more like someone was inking in the background. It was going black on me. And I remember just watching it flutter out. And I remember very vividly going, well, shit, this is it. I looked down my hallway and in that moment, here I'm a cop, I'm an EMT, I've saved I don't know how many lives personally at this point, and there's not a damn thing I can do to save my own life. I dropped dead right there. My wife rolled me on my back, she started doing compressions on me, I mean, she worked on me for four, four and a half minutes before the first officer arrived. Wow. So she had to... I mean, she was, she did phenomenal, man. I, I can't even get ER docs to think like she did. She even put my feet up on the couch in Trendelenburg. So all the oxygenated blood on my legs had gravity forcing it down to my core. I can't get ER docs to do that shit. And she did that in that moment working on her high school sweetheart. So she stops, opens the front door for the cop, pulls the dog back. The officer responded. He did not have an AED. He comes in, sees me down on the floor and he starts doing compressions. He took over and does a phenomenal job. He worked on me until about the nine and a half minute mark when fire finally arrived. They show up, drag my body in the living room. They got more room to work. The IO drill me. They start, you know, O2 and start dropping the OPA, all that fun stuff. Cut my favorite Nirvana shirt off. Uh, according to the crew, they shocked me multiple times. And when I got back, man, it was like someone had switched the light switch. I just... Uh, the pain, man, it's hard to describe. So one, you know, your chest is caved in. It feels like someone hit you with a baseball bat from all the compressions. I was going to say, did they break any ribs? Uh, it's some stress fractures, nothing crazy, but okay. I'd rather have that than be dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I could taste the blood in my mouth. I could feel in my leg where they drilled the IO in. I could feel all that. My my hands and my legs hadn't been oxygenated properly for 16 and a half minutes. So you know that like painful pins and needles when you fall asleep on it? And imagine that on steroids. The worst of all was my head. It just, uh, it felt like someone was taking a sledgehammer in my head with every heartbeat. I was getting that white flash and then at the back of the eyeball shooting pain, like all that. Uh, according to my wife and the crew, I sat up and started pushing guys off me. I don't remember that. Like she grabbed me by my face and said, don't leave me. I said, I won't before I collapsed back. They loaded me up on the gurney. And from that moment, the next, I remember everything about 
dying death and coming back, but the next five days are a complete blur. You know, I, I remember feeling the sway of the gurney and I could hear the firefighters walking on the rocks in my front yard. According to the crew, I was in the back of the ambulance cracking jokes, calling them hose draggers and whatnot. Like I'm still friends with them this day, but uh, the next five days in the hospital, I just have glimpses, man. Was my brain was resetting from the oxygen deprivation. It was like, it was like 10 second time. I'd be out. I wake back up. My wife is talking to me and pass back out. I wake up. Some of the guys from the SWAT team are there. My chief's in the room. I wake up, I'm sobbing for some reason. I wake back up next time and I'm slow dancing with my wife. And I can smell as they're trying to sponge bath and clean me. Cause when you die and your, your sweat pours a lot of crap, open up and dump it out. And it smells horrific. Man, they don't tell you that crap. Like my wow. poor wife is helping the, helping do the sponge bath. And I can, my eyes are watering. I'm like, good guy. <laughs> like, so, I mean, it, that was the next five days. The next thing I know, they're telling me that we've run every single test possible on you. There's nothing wrong with your heart. There was no, Gen, uh, congenital defects there was no plumbing issues there was no electrical issues there was no they had me run through stress tests and calcium checks and you know you name it they even broke my blood down to chromosomic levels looking for genetic mutations and there was nothing They're like your heart's healthy little horse so this is going to happen again we don't know that's why we're going to put this defibrillator in your chest if it happens again it'll shock you immediately you'll be good to go i'm like so i i don't need a pacemaker like well it has a pacemaker function but it lies dormant unless you need it but this is a defibrillator and, and you get this one lead that goes into your heart. And if you drop again, it shocks you. You're good to go. I'm like, oh, shit, that's pretty cool. But because of that medical device, all of a sudden I was uh, pushed aside. I was like, no, you can't come back to work with us defibrillator in your chest. Like what happens if you get tased? Is your radio going to interfere with that? All this stuff that there was no answers for. I literally had to tase myself, which I don't recommend. But I had to go through all these different trials to go back to the, back to the field. And I was successful after six months of fighting with command staff and risk management. But that whole thing was a whole other mental health journey too, man. Because, you know, at 26 years old, you don't think about anything else, especially when you're a young cop. And you just, you just want to get back. Yeah. Instructor. Like you're part of that culture. And you don't, you, we all know we can get shot. We all know that something bad could happen. But when you actually have a medical emergency, how many guys are prepared for that? How many people have the finances to sustain themselves for six months to a year while they're out? How many people have got the mental fortitude to not be a part of it anymore, to be, be told you're never going to be able to put that uniform on again starting today? You can't put that badge back on. Like how I, I was young, I was immature. My identity was too entwined with what I did. I was like, this is who I am. That's bullshit. You're, right, that's what you're right. But, you know, the young cops don't realize that. They think that this is who I am and this is a part of me. And it's like, no, this is what you do and you, you're replaceable. That's that's the sad fact. But it was it started a whole other journey. And then becoming a cardiac arrest survivor, man, there's so many realities that they don't – there's no playbook. There's no resources. There's no pamphlets. You reach out to the cardiac survival groups. Back then, they're like, you want to come share your story and go help sell AEDs and teach CPR programs? No. I want to know how I get back to work. What are my rights? Can they wonder the ADA? Can my employer do this to me? You know, what, what side effects is this medication going to cause? I'm having brain fog. I'm having uh, loss of fine motor skills. I'm having these cognitive issues. How long does that last? How long are these headaches going to be here? You know, my wife watched me dead in the floor for 16 minutes. What resources do I have for her? You know, she's the one every time I snore, she thinks I'm going to cardiac arresting and she's hitting me, waking me up in the middle of the night. Like they're the ones that had to live through that while I lay there on the floor. Like, all these different things that come to be a cardiac arrest survivor that you get told nothing about all the extra hoops you have to jump through for stupid things. Like, you know, I got a vasectomy and I'm getting my, I'm getting a tooth thing done tomorrow. And they're like, Oh, you have to get cardiac clearance. What, what do you mean? There's nothing wrong with my heart. My teeth have nothing to do with that. My balls have nothing to do with my heart. 
They're like, well, the anesthesia, you have to make sure this. I just did anesthesia for the vasectomy six months ago. What do you mean? Like, why do I have to go? All these different things that happen that you don't ever think about. But the the reoccurring factor, like I know you talked to a couple other cardiac arrest survivors that have been shocked multiple times by and saved by their implanted devices. That trauma of living through, like imagine literally being told, yeah, hey, you're going to die again in the next six months. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. This thing's going to shock you. It's going to hurt like hell. Hopefully you're not driving. Hopefully you're not by yourself. Hopefully you're not swimming. Good luck. Like that's a scary thing to have on you, have death sitting on your shoulder at all times, right? That's not something people think about. Like, oh, you've been raped. It's going to happen again the next year. Uh, don't know when. I don't know who's going to happen. But it, it, could you imagine being told you're going to get raped a second time? Like that's that, no. that level of trauma. You're literally dying and coming back. You're dealing with something internally in your body that you have no control over. And that feeling of helplessness is what really causes a lot of trauma and neurological issues. But on top of that, the brain damage and the neurological issues that you have to face post-incident, the emotional waves, the cardiac depression, all these other things that happen. I was, I was not prepared for at, at a 20, as a 26 year old man, I had to really learn as I went. And I kind of, that started me. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful that it happened. I mean, I try to earn every single day that I've been blessed with, you know, I know I've been given a second chance that, a thousand Americans today are going to die from cardiac arrest. They would gladly switch places with me right now if they had the opportunity. I don't take it for granted, man. I, neither one of my kids would have been delivered. Like, neither one of my kids would be here right now had I died that day. I, I delivered both of them. I'm so grateful for every moment with them. So it's just, it's uh, it's a humbling experience. And it definitely put me on the, this path to starting the nonprofit, helping cops save lives and helping cardiac arrest survivors through their journeys. And it's just, uh, it's humbling, man. It's very humbling. You uh, you spoke so well and so articulately about the thought of it happening again, and it's like it's one of those things that I never considered the mental health aspect of it. Um, I just want to hit you with one last question. Leave it on a fun note. If you had a uh, comic superbook power, what would it be? Oh man. You got to go with Jedi. You got to go with the Jedi trick, man. If I can be able to control things in my mind, telekinesis, be able to change weak-minded thoughts, like, man, that'd, that'd be where it's at. If I could take the Jedi powers, I'd be all about that. Yeah, I uh, I 100% agree with you. That's the answer I always give. But I, I always say I want all of the mental abilities, the ability to, like, levitate thing, telekinesis, the ability to levitate myself, the ability to tap into other people's minds and just like for their own good, of course, not, not for evil. Yeah, for my good. If I could turn off my own thoughts sometimes and man, yeah, just, right, and just silence, <laughs> silence my own mind. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that would be silence, awesome, man. Silence. One person said they'd love to uh, just like tap people and instantly make them feel euphoria, feel happy. I'm like, that would be a pretty cool power, but I want all of the powers of the mind. <laughs> yeah that'd be pretty cool i like that i want them all i want to be able to set things up on fire with my mind if you know if if <laughs> if, if, if if the defense so calls for it you know yeah what's the one from the boys where they with the, the blood control that can make people's heads explode and all that you know you see that one you watch the boys oh yeah oh yeah i watch everything about the, um and then they have a uh prequel now called gen v I just finished that, man. It was good. It was really good. That's going to spin off into its own show. And uh, I, I love that whole series, that concept of uh, 
people being given superpowers through a serum. Yeah, yeah it's got our humor, man. It's got cop humor all over it. I mean, it really does. Humor, twisted stuff. You're like, all right, this is the reality. If people really had powers, you'd see a lot more of this stuff. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Because it shows the flaws of people. And, and like, not everyone's going to be good and use it to society's benefit. There, uh, there's, there's a crazy episode that I won't get into, but where the guy gets really tiny. <laughs> oh yeah, oh my god, <laughs> it's yeah. so twisted and so dark. But it's you're like, like, that's where people would go with it if they had powers, man. It, there's not everyone's got the same morals, not everyone's got the same kinks. You know, you watch it it's like, oh man, I didn't even think about stuff like that. Like, who are these writers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, I look forward to continuing the conversation in person. And, um, yeah, we'll definitely do it again. We got to do a part two. But uh, I want to. Yeah, I can I can talk to you all day, man. We didn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> I know. I know you got a lot more to share. But in the interest of not making this episode too long, I'm going to cut it here <laughs> and, and respect your time. I really appreciate you coming. All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of this story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, Hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith, the number one. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.